Hello, and welcome to the Lens Hoping Nothing podcast. I'm Michael Humphreys, and I'm happy to be talking to you today. This is episode two, and we'll be talking about what is the Mutuum. I took a Twitter poll, and it seemed that four of the seven people who responded were interested in hearing more about YouTube. So I thought I'd go down that route, and then we can look at some of the other topics, like uh, time value of money, inflation, uh, theories of value, and kind of go from there. So in the last episode, I talked about what usury is, especially going back through the tradition. And the definition that we see arising out of the tradition is exacting profit from a mutuum. Now, there's three key terms that we need to keep in mind in this definition, and it's exacting, profit, and mutuum. So exacting here is just obligating or requiring in the agreement. So it involves this kind of obligation. Um, so it's not explicitly theft or robbery in the way that you might just steal something, but it's this obligation. But it also might include something that's not formally or explicitly in the contract, but a requirement of some sort, even informally. Um, often this was to avoid the appearance of usury, and so it's still usurious. The second term is profit, and this is anything over the principle. The way that this is talked about is uh, increment, addition, superabundance over the principle. Um, and that this goes throughout a lot of the tradition as well. There is some ambiguity there because of extrinsic titles, which we can talk about later, but the third term is what I want to focus on today, which is the mutuum. So similar to usury, there's a great deal of disagreement about what exactly a mutuum is. So you have uh, people like Belloc and Brian McCall who will talk about it as something along the lines of a loan for consumption, that this is um, something that you, um, you give money to someone else so that they can then go buy something that they're going to consume, like food. Um, so that's one definition. Uh, a loan of fungibles is another one. So the idea here is uh, you're loaning something that can be that can be replaced in kind. So you can replace, for example, um, like kindling for a fire, but you can't replace um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, even though they might be usable and were used as kindling for fire. Uh, another one is a loan of consumptibles or consumables. And the idea here is kind of going along the lines of Aquinas' argument, which is not exclusive to him, but that usury involves this, this consumption as well. And so kind of differentiating from Belloc's and McCall's uh, position, where this is a loan to go buy something for consumption, this is a loan of something consumed. Um, 
sometimes this has been put in terms of uh, consumed in first use as compared with more durable things. Um, but each, you know, these last two specifically kind of um, focus around what is the thing consumed, uh, the nature of the the thing loaned. Um, so some authors have mixed up fungible and, and consumable, uh, saying that anything that is fungible is consumable, and this is a particular area of confusion because not everything that is fungible is consumable and vice versa, uh, at least in, in a conventional sense. So, for example, screws are uh, fungible, but they're not necessarily consumable uh, in kind of these conventional senses. For whatever reason, people kind of mix up consumable and, and fungible. And... and a lot of these kind of make sense within uh, some of the tradition. So in Roman in Roman law, uh, the Justinian Institutes um, defines, you know, the mutuum specifically in terms of something that is consumed in its very use. And the examples it gives are wine, oil, corn, uh, money, copper, silver, gold, which might be a little confusing because how is copper, silver, and gold consumed? But th this is the kind of idea that it's 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 arising from. Um, mutuum is often translated as loan for consumption, so there's also that kind of uh, limitation as far as uh, the the translation. And then, as I kind of mentioned before, Aquinas really focuses on consumption. And sort of a prima facie uh, perspective might give that idea that the mutuum is about consumption or that it's about consumables, for example. But I want to propose a, a different perspective. And I'm going to be drawing on um, Roman law, the tradition, um, just the way it was historically treated. And then finally, looking at some of the magisterial documents to understand, well, how is the church looking at this contract? Um, so the, the, I'm going to give away the, the, the story and just say the mutuum is a personally secured loan. If you read anything or listened to me before, you, you'll, you'll know that this is, this is the position I take. And I think it's the most coherent and most defensible position. But the first point I'd like to make is that outside of discussions of usury, this this seems to be entirely uncontroversial. Like, no one really disputes this. It's only when uh, in discussing usury that I've gotten any pushback on this. Like, how dare I uh, define the mutuum in this way? And which is always very confusing because I'm pointing at the way other people are defining it. So let's kind of start with explaining the difference between uh, a personally secured debt or an asset secured debt. So with an asset secured debt, um, this, this is kind of most obvious in terms of the way uh, default is handled. So 
the in an asset secured debt, there's going to be some sort of property that's put up to secure the debt. And this means that in the case of default, the lender can pursue that asset, you know, take it as his own and sell it in order to recover the principal. Now, there's a couple of different cases. Either that principal, either the asset covers that principal or it doesn't. So if it covers it, he's good. If he doesn't, though, so if it doesn't completely uh, remit that debt, he he doesn't have any further uh, rights or claims to further pursue the recovery of his principal because his claim is limited to this property. And that, I think, is what most clearly distinguishes the, the asset-secured debt from the personally-secured debt, is that the, the claim that the lender has is definitionally um, reduced to this property, the specified property in the contract. And so it's, it's a limited kind of claim. In the personally secured loan, what happens is, in the case of default, the lender can pursue the borrower personally, so he can go after all of his own other goods. And so, when that principle is not met, he can start, um, you know, taking his other property, or in in modern times, garnishing his wages. And so. This is where the personally secured debt uh, is unlimited in its claim because there's no specific property that kind of boxes it in. He has this unlimited claim against the borrower to recover his principal. And so um, this is kind of what distinguishes the two. Now, in Roman law, from what I've seen, I'm not an expert in Roman law, but this sort of distinction is laid out. So there is a distinction between an action or, or right in Roman law that is in rem, in a thing, versus in personam, in a person. And so this means that the action in rem is you have some sort of claim over a thing. And so... Um, it involves a, a right over that thing that potentially involves everyone else. Uh, for example, like your ownership of a thing, it potentially involves every other person because it's this exclusive right, and so you can potentially exercise that right against anyone. Now, in personam means you have a right or an action against a specific person. And, uh, for example, in these kind of debt cases, uh, you have uh, an action against the person in the case of non-performance of the contract. So, for example, default. So if the, um, if the other person fails to perform uh, their portion of the contract, and this, this arises in every contract uh, in Roman law, then you can take action against them. Uh, another example would be uh, in the societas. Uh, there is some in personam. Um, actions where you can actually uh, pursue the 
the the traveling merchant, for example, depending on uh, what they did. So the, there is this kind of distinction already present in Roman law. So it's not just coming out of nowhere. Uh, for the mutuum specifically, this gives rise um, to what is called a condictio uh, action, which is a in personam action that allows the lender to pursue the the um, the borrower specifically uh, for the return of the principal. And there's no other no other actions or, or rights granted to the lender. So it's a singular right over the uh, borrower. Um, so we already see here that this, this uh, in Roman law, the mutuum, seems to be uh, a right in personam. So it seems to be secured by the person, by his promise, to return the principal. Um, if we look at St. Ambrose, the way in the De Tobias, the way that he talks about the mutuum and how it was executed, um, in, in Roman society, it sounds very much like a personal secured debt. So if you were unable to pay your debt, you could potentially be sold into slavery. Your family could be sold into slavery. All your goods could be taken. That's just simply what a personally secured debt is. People could be, uh, you could pursue all the goods of the person. And I mean, slavery in particular kind of gives this idea of, yeah, this is really secured by the person of the borrower. And he even talks about how uh, people are potentially reduced to destitution and commit suicide over, over usury. So this isn't, um, this isn't a limited thing that keep, the usurer keeps coming for you, taking everything you have, ultimately. Um, so in, in another work uh, by Dr. Rayerson, uh, she studies the, the medieval practice in the French city of Montpellier. And what she specifically says is that the mutuum loan uh, was generally guaranteed by the borrower with obligation of personal goods. So again, here we see that this practice of the mutuum was guaranteed by the borrower. And she talks about specifically how debtors, when defaulting, were put into debtor's prison until they paid the whole principal off. So again, we see this pursuit of the borrower that, that personally secured nature. Um, now, Father Patrick Cleary, in his book, uh, Usury and, or the Church in Usury, discusses this as, as well. And kind of just in passing, he just says, well, this, yeah, the loan, the mutuum loan is, yeah, it involves a personal claim. He says, in a contract of loan or mutuum, the, the lender is not the, the owner of the good. But he has a personal claim on the debtor for the amount. So there is this personal claim. This is one of the only places I've seen where uh, usury is being discussed and, and the personal claim is explicitly admitted, at least uh, in modern times. Um, 
So again, there's that personal thing. Now looking at St. Thomas Aquinas, I think th this is important because St. Thomas is uh, such a prominent figure, is we want to understand, well, what does he think uh, the mutuum is when he's discussing this? So um, in, in the question on usury, in the second part of the second part, question 78, article 2, response to the fifth, he says that the borrower holds money at his own risk and is bound to pay it all back. So here again, he is bound to pay it regardless of the of what happens to the property because he has it at his own risk. So if the property is completely lost, he still has to repay that. Um, looking to back to the commentary on the sentences, he also talks about um, the, the manner in which a lender should not uh, profit from the industry of the, the borrower. So if the borrower makes something more from it through his industry, the, the borrower or the lender should not have claim to that. But he also says uh, the lender ought not try to sell him his own, in, his own industry, just as neither ought the borrower to have less because of his foolishness. So if the borrower foolishly loses all the property, the lender should not have to suffer less. So again, this is that appearance of this requirement that the borrower has to repay the whole thing, regardless of, of the loss of property. Now, there's a, there's a further kind of interesting passage that I found, um, you know, several months ago, I think. And it has to do with uh, Aquinas is discussing the old law and whether the uh, juridical injunctions were fitting or, or sufficient. And so one of them is he considers the, the jubilee. And so what he says here is that, um, and this is the summa, uh, the, the first part of the second part, question 105. Uh, Article 2, response to the 4th. Um, here he's talking about um, the the forgiveness of debts. And so he says that very likely after seven years, either the debtor will already have repaid these debts, repaid his debts, um, or he'll be insolvent. And this insolvency is interesting because by admitting the insolvency, that means this this debtor doesn't have anything to his name, uh, or at least he doesn't have anything sufficient to to pay. So maybe he still has, you know, the clothes on his back and and food. But um, and what he says is, but if they were altogether insolvent, the borrower, there was the same reason for remitting the debt from love for them, as there was for renewing the loan on the account for their need. Now, the, the key here is that the lender should remit the debt from love rather than the debt being remitted in virtue of his insolvency, or really that the, the, the insolvency just brought an end to the contract. So the, the lender actually has to kind of forgive the debt even though the debtor has nothing. 
And so here we see again the the borrower has nothing. He's insolvent. But he's still obligated to pay the return. The lender has to actually forgive the debt. And uh, Aquinas is saying, forgive it from love. And juridically, the Jubilee is, you know, something uh, that should be forgiven. Um, and this is an important part of the mutuum as an act of charity. Um, that really, if your friend who you gave the mutuum to is worse off uh, at the time of repayment, you should lend hoping nothing in return. That is, in your charity, you should forgive even the principal if you can't repay it. And that's been one way to interpret that that passage from, from Luke. So this this is kind of the, some of the, the perspectives over time. St. Thomas Aquinas being one of the, the prominent doctors of the church to consider. The next I want to move into the magisterium. What has the church said about this? Uh, and it's been very interesting. So over time, especially in the, the 15th and 16th centuries, there was a lot of financial innovation. So the commercial revolution was kind of picking up speed. And there's new contracts coming out. So, um, And even they had to deal with, with older contracts as well. Um, so um, one of the, the main contracts that they were addressing was the, the medieval census. And this goes back uh, like very far, like uh, the 10th century at least. Uh, so the, the census contract was this agreement where the, the owner of some property would um, sell a claim over his goods, his fruitful goods, and the, uh, the purchaser would um, essentially sell it back to him. And so the, the transaction was kind of that, like from a financial perspective, that the, um, the purchaser would give the, the seller a, a lump sum of money and then the, the 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 purchaser would receive a claim over that property that would uh, give him the a portion of the fruits or rents of the, of the property. Um, and so, uh, Callistus, Pope Callistus the Third, discusses this, and he talks about real estate, for example. So, if you have some sort of rental property or uh, you know farms and things. The, the idea was that um, you're selling this portion of this property from which you can derive a claim to the fruits that are actually produced from the property. And this is the way he kind of talks about it. Um, this one in particular is very likely infallible because uh, the Pope is discussing an issue of faith and morals. He invokes his apostolic authority. And it's, I, I think it's outside his jurisdiction as the, uh, the primate of Italy. So there's, there's good reason that it meets the criteria of, of infallibility. And so 
what he says here with the census is that the buyer of the census has a claim to the, these rents, these fruits of the good. But if that property that is the underlying basis of that is brought to utter destruction, then he wouldn't be, the buyer would not be in power. He wouldn't have a claim to recover uh, even the price he paid, even that principle that he put forward. And so this is very clearly a uh, an asset recourse or an asset secured uh, debt of some sort. And so um, specifically the question he's dealing with is someone was claiming that the the census that he had sold was actually usurious and so he didn't want to pay the, the rents. And so the Pope here is saying, no, this isn't usurious. Here's one of the things about it. And so this is kind of telling us something of the nature of agreements that are not usurious. So asset recourse uh, loans are not usurious is what we can kind of derive from this. Um, but the question then is, well, what is usurious? And we know that any contract that is usurious is a mutuum because the mutuum is um, that sort of material component of, of the act, uh, similar to the way that, um, you know, killing a human is the material portion of murder. Um, killing an innocent person is, is what's formally murder. And so exacting profit specifically from a mutuum is usury. So in this case, the contract is allowing for some profit. It is not usurious. Therefore, there is not a mutuum in this contract. So then we move to uh, another um, papal document uh, written by St. Pius V, which is called Cum Onus. This one potentially also has may have the mark of infallibility as well, because he does um, invoke his apostolic authority. The issue, though, is that it very obviously has certain components of like a positive law perspective, like he lays out certain periods of time and things that um, have to be met, uh, like the the borrower or the the seller of a census has to provide at least a year's notice. But here he specifically says, and he's condemning usurious contracts. So Callistus was doing the opposite. He was saying a contract that was claiming to be usurious was not. Here, Pius is condemning usurious contracts. And he says that uh, in the census, uh, it has to be um, grounded in some sort of immovable property that is fruitful in itself. So we're talking about some sort of real estate here. And so he specifically says, if it's not grounded in this, it's usurious. And so he's kind of dealing with a, a contract that arose called the, the personal census, 
where people would sell a census against their own labor um, or all their goods generally. So this had kind of the uh, sense of a of uh, of a mutuum because it, it was this personally secured type of contract. And so he goes on very similar to um, to Callistus, but this time he's condemning usurious contracts and he says. You know, if the property is reduced to destruction, if the rents are lost, the seller is not obligated to pay that, or he's only obligated to pay in proportion to the property uh, being destroyed. So if it's only partially destroyed, then those rents are also partially reduced. If it's utterly destroyed, then it's all gone. And so very clearly here, he's again, uh, you know, setting that asset secured is, is not usurious, but also he's condemning these contracts, which are personally secured. So when a, the seller has to personally guarantee the payment of these rents, the return of the principal, that's when the problem is. That's when it's usurious. That's what he's condemning. So he he's very much in line with Callistus here, but he's kind of taking the next step. Whereas Callistus only um, tells us what is not usurious. Usurious. Uh, Pius is telling us what is usurious, and he's he's condemning it. Now, um, one of the things we might consider is that maybe this just has something to do with the census contract. But what we see here um, in another um, papal document by Sixtus V in uh, Detestabilis Avaritia, he is talking about um, the triple, something like what was known as the triple contract. So in the triple contract, the idea was, at least the way it was explained or justified, was that you had a partnership agreement, so a societon. Combined with that, um, the uh, investing partner would enter into an insurance contract on the principal. So his principal was guaranteed by this insurance contract. In addition to that, the, the profits that the uh, investing partner was also insured. So there was a second insurance contract there as well. And so the way that this was justified was, well, a societas is um, a societas, a partnership. That's licit. Uh, an insurance contract, that's licit. So if you just push them all together, and then the whole thing is listed. There's some problems with that, of course, but uh, let's, let's kind of focus on what Sixtus has to say. So, again, Sixtus is going to condemn this sort of contract. And so he condemns this sort of partnership where this, the managing partner, or has to uh, personally guarantee the, the principal and the profits such that even if the the whole all the goods that they own jointly uh, are destroyed, so even 
so the way he says it is uh, that even by mere accident or injury, loss, damage, the whole principle and capital are destroyed. The, the managing partner has to restore it in full and safely. And he goes on that, you know, the, the managing partner is obligated by this, this pact or promise to restore everything in full, even if it's all destroyed. So again, you know, we kind of return, we go back to Callistus, who is saying, yeah, if the whole of the property is destroyed, the, in illicit census, the, uh, the, the purchaser is not empowered. He doesn't have that right to pursue the, uh, the seller. And so here, the investing partner does not have the right to pursue the, the managing partner to, um, get his principal and, and, and property back. The interesting thing here also is that uh, Sixtus V specifically condemns uh, proceedings against the the um, the managing partner for the return. So he he's specifically condemning this notion of a deficiency judgment, which is pursuing any um, missing of that principle, and he's condemning this all as usury. So, um, since this type of these these type of contracts are usurious, what this entails is that these sort of components are what make a mutuum. And the problem is that he's trying to take um, the the purchaser is trying to take his profit as well. And so this this gives the idea that this is the way that the magisterium is thinking about it. That Pope Callistus, Pope uh, Sixtus, Pope Pius are all thinking about usury in this, this personally secured way. And this is extremely important because once we understand where usury is, what kind of contract it arises under, then we can start to talk about and determine where usury is. So that's where a lot of the confusion lies. So, uh, and, and a lot of the excuse of usury as well. So, um, I think that's good for today. Uh, we will over time, but, um, you know, thank you for listening today. And if you have, uh, any questions, feel free to email me. Uh, questions, comments uh, at lendhopingnothing at gmail.com. And I'll have all the show notes along with the quotes and, and links uh, down below. So thank you and uh, thanks for listening.